Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to Daniel Muller. Is it Muller? Muller? Muller, like the, uh, you know, like the guy who's investigating the president. Okay. No relation. <laughs> Took me a minute to put it all together. Um, do you want to just introduce yourself real quick? I guess I should mention you are on episode 212 and talk to us about the Angular console. Oh yeah. Um, so okay, a little a little bit about me. Uh, I work for Narwhal as a consultant, so that's cool. Um, Narwhal makes a thing called Angular Console, and so uh, when I'm not helping like companies uh, as part of my job at Narwhal, I'm making console. So that's mostly what I'm working on nowadays: helping out companies. Uh, T-Mobile is the current client that I'm helping, and making Angular Console is what I do when I'm not doing T-Mobile stuff. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So, um... Let's jump in and kind of get your story, and then we can kind of come back around and, you know, talk a little bit more about who you are and where you've been. But um, how did you get into programming? Well, uh, it's a funny story. I think this is probably reminiscent of a lot of people's experiences. But oh, my table is shaking. Let's stop that. Be cool, table. Be cool. Okay, that'll do. Um, so I went to college. Uh, intending to become a doctor. I'm from a Jewish family. So that's sort mm -hmm. of like the organic expectation that, you know, my grandparents were just so thrilled that I, you know, embraced. Uh, and I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is, you know, a school that is known for computer science. And uh, it was sort of in the air. I got excited about programming just being there. They had a talking robot in one of the computer science buildings and it was great. So I decided I would uh, try to learn cognitive science because it was a way to be a doctor, but also learn a teeny bit of coding. And my first semester of college, I just fell in love with it uh, and just started doing uh, human-computer interaction because I wasn't smart enough to do computer science. And that's how I started coding uh, and designing. Nobody really lets me design things because um, coders aren't supposed to design things. But occasionally, like for console, I get to you know take out my sketch pad and do that sort of thing. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, my mother, all growing up, told me I was going to get a PhD, and I got my bachelor's degree and got a job and started coding. <laughs> hey, there's still time for you to not disappoint her, because as of right now, I know she's disappointed, as are all of my relatives that, you know, love and care about me. Yeah, exactly. It, it's funny, because now she tells me that I'm going to be rich and that I'm going to take care of her when she's old, so. Oh, that's good. At yeah. least so she's over to back out. Me. Yeah. Uh, most of my family is, except for my grandparents, who like they, they don't care about money. You know, they're right. they don't need me to support them, so they're still like intrinsically wanting me to, you know, be called doctor in the title, or else I'll forever be a disappointment in their eyes. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's life, you know? Yep. Makes sense. Um, so yeah, so you get into programming at, in college and you're doing the, what was it? Computer human interaction. Did I get that uh, right? Human computer interaction. Uh, it's HCI for short. That one okay. might be easier to remember. Yeah, makes sense. So how do you make that transition into web and things like that? Do you graduate well, and get the right job or was it something else? Kind of sort of like as part of, uh, I studied cognitive science as my primary, which is uh, sort of AI, you know, when you get down mm -hmm. to it. It's a lot of different facets of information all coming together to do something specific. Uh, but one of the facets that you needed to learn is how to do coding. Um, you right. sort of model the brain as a computer and view it as a black box and then try to discern what's inside the black box using experiments. Like that's what cognitive science really wants you to do. So I got to do a crap ton of coding then. And uh, every summer internship I had, because I wanted to get some beer money, uh, was coding related because those pay super well. And even if you're not a computer science student, man, like, do they want you if you have Carnegie Mellon on your resume? So I lied uh, to Time Warner Cable, said I knew JavaScript, and they gave me my first programming job, and I taught myself JavaScript there, and uh, had a couple other crappy internships that don't matter. Um, and eventually, I got an internship at Google, and then I worked there for a bit. And that's mostly how I got my coding jobs. Gotcha. So I'm curious, you're going in to be a doctor. Were you just, were you that interested in being a doctor or kind of subconsciously looking at doing something else? Or was there something particular about programming that got you really excited? Well, my dream job since I had been a little kid was to work for Google just because, um, I don't know, I, when I first played with the search engine, it had like a pretty profound like impact on me. Like I was able to look up things. I don't know, it was just... I think it had a more of a profound effect on me than it does for most people. So it was my dream job. And so that was always in the back of my mind. I just didn't think uh, I'd never coded. So when I first started college, it wasn't exactly there. And even going through, I never thought I was particularly smart because I wasn't in you know, their computer science program where all the smarties were. But turns out if you just lie in your resume enough, uh, people hire you. And that's, that's all it takes to be a top coder. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I know a few people who have lied, you know, to get a job and had it completely backfire on them. And I know a few people who have lied to get a job, both of these in, with, with encoding, and then they were able to pick things up quickly enough to actually, you know, yeah. make it work. I think the hiring process is pretty much just a gamble. Like, you don't know if somebody's lying. You don't know if they're smarts. You know, they're all just like indicators. And, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're competent, you'll, you'll do fine. Like, you'll learn and you'll try hard. And if you're a bad employee, they'll learn and they'll fire you. So, you know, it's not the worst thing as long as you're talented to, you know, massage the truth. Well, the other thing is, is that it seems like most of the interviews out there, they're asking the same questions that have been asked forever in computer science. And Sorry. so, you know, it's, you know, basically validating your CS degree chops or whatever, you know, whatever you picked up in your CS degree. And then, you know, and then you come in and they don't actually know if you can do the job. I went on a little bit of a rant in uh, Adventures in Angular this last week. That sounds fair. Like, I don't know how it is, like, with most jobs. Because in our world, it had a very nice interview process where I just talked to Victor Sopkin for three hours. And if anybody's going to decide if you're smart, it's him. Because he's just too, like, yeah. see through you. And he'll, like, when he looks at you, it's like a piercing stare. Like, he's seeing right through your clothes and you feel so naked. But uh, 
like with other places like Google, I had some nice interview questions. Like a guy invented a game and that was his interview question. Uh, and he just asked me like, how would you beat me at this game I made up? And that, that was really fun. But well, That's interesting. Yeah, most of them are bullshit and we all know that. But it looks like uh, at least a couple cool interviewers have nice coding questions that their companies love yeah. to use. Well, and as far as talking to Victor for three hours goes, I mean, if you sit down and you're event- essentially having conversations that you would have if you worked there about stuff that you would have conversations about if you worked there, he's going to find out pretty quick if you're full of crap. Yeah. And it was, it was actually really embarrassing. Like I, I thought I was pretty good at Angular because uh, at Google, like Angular 2 is pretty slow to be adopted relative mm-hmm. to like in the open source community. Right. So like as we were coding the interview, he, I had to learn how to use the CLI. Like I was looking up the docs while talking to Victor and like we talked about that, like I wasn't fooling him. Like I'll never fool him because he's too he's too sharp. But like uh, he taught me how to use switch map, or the RxJS operator during the interview, which is so stressful because it's like a it's an abstract concept that you have to sort of grok while talking. You know that's right. a lot of cortisol in your you know, making it hard to think. So yes, I guess in that sort of situation, uh, if I hadn't have been like able to, you know pick up what he was throwing down it wouldn't have gone so well. So I like that interview format a lot. Makes sense. So what did you do at Google? That was fun. Um, so as I said, I was like a fresh, my first job at a college. Um, and so I was just, you know, a little tiny baby developer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was taught by one of my good friends. His name is Andrew Allen. He sort of took me under his wing and taught me how to do all sorts of things with the uh, Bazel, um, which is Google's builds system. Yeah. Uh, and I've, he, me and him still work on projects to this day using it, which is super fun. Um, and mostly we had a, for Google's payments, uh, which is Google split up into a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. parts because it's big. Right. One of them is payments processing, like Google Wallet, uh, Android Pay. And uh, when you handle money, people tend to like get a little bit angrier with you than if like, I don't know, they can't load their email. <laughs> can't imagine why. Can't either. Uh, so basically, you sort of need to have like more customer support for like payment things. Mm-hmm. So uh, we ran a server on our little team. It was called the Payments Tools Team, and it housed like a, I don't know, like sixty. I'm probably bullshitting the number, but uh, tens of Angular JS tools. Mm-hmm. It was like a, at one point in its existence, it was the biggest, or it had the most Angular JS like websites of any server hosted at Google. So it was like, it was in its own right, it was like a nice little project, you know, get me a lot of experience with Angular because mm-hmm. me and Andrew, uh, Andrew left pretty soon after I joined, which left uh, me and one other person who were the de facto Angular experts to handle everybody's questions. And basically, uh, I don't know, be a consultant for that because I was like the lead front end for this little server platform and we did a whole bunch of cool stuff with Basil, and only me and one other person knew about it. And so we mostly just fielded questions and built tools and maintained the server. Makes sense. So you leave Google and you wind up going over to Narwhal. How, how did that transition happen? Um, well, I had this like really nice job on the payments tools team. Uh, you know, I had made this like really close family that I was like very emotionally attached to. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was young and I was at a point in my life where I wanted to change. And so I tried to do it very easily by switching jobs in Google. 
Uh, and that didn't work out. Like I was just miserable. And uh, I'd make offhanded remarks to my employees about how like life is just a never ending abyss of energy draining. And, you know, I was just, I was in a funk. Uh, and there's this one day I, I just didn't want to get out of bed. It was like 10 AM on a Wednesday. You know, you're supposed to be at work already. Right. And I just, I just said, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> this isn't working for me. So I just never got out of my pajamas and I went online, applied for any, I'd gone to NGConf that year. Um, mm -hmm. Google sent me because they're very nice. And I just tried to recall in my head who had been there because I was at a point where I wasn't passionate about much, but I remembered I, I was passionate about Angular. That's basically how I got my jollies. Mm -hmm. so just thought of any Angular job I could think of. Uh, I applied for like Narwhal, of course, who ended up like getting back to me super quick because they're best and everybody should work for them. And I applied for uh, Ionic, who I didn't realize was moving away from Angular more and more. So I gave them the shaft. And uh, there's a couple other places, but Ultimately, it was just that Wednesday morning, wrote to Narwhal, just cold call because they had no job application at that point. And then they just got back to me within a month and it was super fun. Nice. So one thing that I think is interesting is that you've worked at kind of the two of the bigger companies that people think of when they think of Angular, at least within the community, right? A lot of the speakers that we see at conferences, a lot of the um, interesting technologies in Angular are either coming out of Google or Narwhal. So um, how is it different working at one than the other? And I realize that they're completely different companies, have different approaches to things. And, you know, so it, it may not be better so much as different, or maybe it is better. I don't know. But yeah, what, what's that? What, what, yeah. What's it like working at the two sort of angular giants? It's a, you know, it's very different from one another. Um, yeah, Narwhal, uh, I guess I'll just start there because it's, I think, easier for people to understand that job than it is at Google because they're so different. Mm -hmm. But well, um, you know, we get paid to contribute back to the community. Like it's right. part of my job to do open source things, which is very cool. That's uh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that was mostly my de facto reason for wanting to leave Google is like I wanted to do that sort of thing. Uh, I was talking to Alex Eagle, you know, trying to contribute more and more to ABC, uh, uh -huh. Angular Basel tool convergence. Right. Uh, and I just I wasn't being able to, like there was some business justification at Google, but I just couldn't do it. They just wouldn't let me. Mm -hmm. Whenever I did it, it was like just against people's whims. So I went into work every day feeling guilty, like I was a bad employee, because I was actively being a bad employee and right. doing things I wanted to do, just in a good feeling. Uh, so that's sort of how it felt at Google, where there's just a lot less autonomy, because they're a big place, and they have the things they hired you to do. Like they're mm -hmm. 80,000 people, and they have a lot of things they need you to do, and you don't get to pick as much, which is, you know, just sort of the reality, which is sad. Right. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. 
you can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash a story. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. At Narwhal, there's a lot of autonomy. You know, it's like, right. get a crazy idea. Uh, Angular thought of, or, sorry, Victor thought of Angular console one weekend and just hacked it together. And now it's what we based, like, I don't know, half of our company, like, okay, Arizona. Like, it just, you know, it's fast moving. It's a startup. Mm-hmm. And that's great. You know, it's not Google, which is slower because it's big. Right. more methodical. And yet, you always had to be worried about breaking things because outside of Google, uh, tests don't exist in the same way in that the world is bad at testing, which lets you move faster and break things all the time. And at Google, they had everything's built with Bazel, so it's hermetic. They have the best like build tools in the world, and they expect you to use them. So you had to like just take a lot more care when you were doing things. Right. And despite my best efforts, that has definitely changed. I don't test nearly as well. Uh, my build tools are worse because I have to use Webpack instead of mm-hmm. like Bazel, you know. Uh, so that sort of thing's worse. Just the build tools outside of Google, I think, are a little bit worse. I mean, uh, yeah, than those inside. But otherwise, working in the open source is very, very fun. It's enjoyable. Interesting. So I guess one other question that I have, and this is something that I don't know if we hear as much about, because um, usually when we're talking to people within Google about Angular, we're talking to members of the Angular team. Sure. And so if you're not on the Angular team, what is your relationship to Angular and to the Angular team? So you don't have much relationship with the Angular team. Like they're slightly accessible, but it's, you know, it's a huge corporation, so they can't right. like, give priority to everybody because it's just giving priority to 20,000 people just doesn't make sense. Uh, so you, you mostly don't interact with them. Um, they have like internal documentation pages. Uh, like they have uh, an internal like link redirector. Uh, you just prefix everything with go slash and then you're in the internal docs. Mm-hmm. There's like go slash angular and you know, that's sort of your alternative to angular.io because right. there's, you know, it's just different. Uh, you don't use NPM in Google. They have, uh, they have all of their node modules like stored in their monorepo. So, you know, everything's a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, uh, the build tools inside of Google, I think are just phenomenal. And that's like sort of what Alex Eagle's like whole point of ABC is like to bring them outside of Google because they're so fucking good. Sorry, they're so good. They're so great. <laughs> that's uh, just like the builds are just instants because Basil's like just, Basil's great. So everything, I'd say like being an Angular developer inside Google is in some ways a much better experience just because the build tools are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other respects, it sucks because you don't get to use third, you, you don't get to use the open source stuff as much. There's like a big review process to bring something, uh, bring a node module into Google. So you have to do a code review to make sure it's secure and that they're not, I don't know, gonna steal any Google secrets. So there's, there's just more friction inside. So that, that part sucks, but you get a lot of stuff for free because it's the world's best testing like stuff in the whole world. Nice. So are there any things that you've done with Angular that we haven't talked about that you're particularly proud of or want to make sure that people know about? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm working on something right now that I, I feel like is a good culmination of all the stuff that we've talked about and I've worked on over the course of my career, my mm-hmm. short career because I'm young. Um, so I'm working on this thing that's a 
at, at Proto, they, that, sorry, at Google, they use uh, protocol buffers to specify like a, what a server like should accept as a request mm -hmm. and what it should output as a response. It's a just a way to define a schema between a client right. and a server. And it's really like terse one, which I like. Like a, you can define an RPC service in like 50 lines of a protofile where if you're doing like a, a swagger definition, it might be four times as much code. It's like verbose. So something I've missed not being at Google is being able to use protos. And, uh, they have really cool build tools at Google that would allow you to take a single protofile and generate stuff from it, like generate mm -hmm. the server stuff that your client should hit and generate the client service that would call out to the server. Like all that's like just made for you. Uh, they call it the build rules in Google one API and it takes a proto and spits out those things for you to use and it's just magic. And I've really missed that. Uh, so this past week um, for T-Mobile, I've been trying to basically make that for them. And uh, the, the work is going well, which is fun. Um, basically uh, there's, just using a whole bunch of different build rules people have put out. But you take a single protofile you write, and you get to generate an Angular service that uh, calls into the right server automatically without you lifting a finger. And you get to generate a server stuff that you know has its endpoint set up to be hit by the Angular service. And it's all type saved, so it generates all the types that the request and response should be. So you get all these like nice TypeScript compilation error catching, like if your server and client were to ever fall out of sync. That sounds really interesting. It's fun. I mean, it's all built using Bazel, so I've been having to do clever things like make Bazel run inside of a Docker container because mm -hmm. not everybody has it installed, but almost everybody has Docker, luckily. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Getting everybody to adopt a new build tool is very, very hard, but luckily Docker makes the whole thing a little bit abstracted, so you don't need to convince anybody. <clears throat> you just need to say, run this Docker thing. Don't do that blindly. Yeah, that's true. I think it'll be really interesting to see how things go with the adoption of Bazel. Yeah, the Angular team is doing pretty good work. Their beta of CLI, CLI 8 has like some uh, custom builders attached to that board that run Bazel. And I'm very excited to see how that all works because it's sort of hiding it from the community, but getting all the benefits of having a chromatic test runner that stores build artifacts. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was talking to... Who was it? I think, yeah, I was talking to somebody and, and they mentioned it might have been um, Brad, and it, I think it was quite a while ago. But he mentioned basically that yeah, when they were ready, that the new CLI will just switch over to Bazel and you won't even feel it. Yeah, it's great. It's, they even so they adopted a strategy that I'm a big fan of because it's in my head, it's how I would have designed it too. Where all you need to do to switch from like uh, the regular like old CLI means of building things to doing the basal way of building things is just change one line in your Angular JSON to swap out the builder. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is like just completely obfuscated from you, which is yeah. really, really cool. And hopefully it'll allow people to, if they have like multiple apps in an Angular workspace, they can transition them like maybe one by one and you know just do it piecemeal, which is really cool because normally basal it's all or nothing. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, th that's how we do a lot of other things too, right? I mean, we use Angular. We don't necessarily look at how it's doing things under the hood. Yeah, um, it's like exactly what they do with Webpack. Like you don't know Webpack exists unless you're, you read blog articles about it or else you just don't care. Yep. Yeah, or if you decide that you're going to customize the way that 
Webpack builds your Angular app, but most people don't. Most people fit within the, you know, the 90, 95% case. And it, you know, it doesn't matter. So. Yeah, my friend Cindy was mentioning that the React community is moving towards that too, where people don't want to manage their build tools. They want their framework too. And so they're having their Webpack config sort of managed too. Yeah. I know everybody doesn't do that, but at least you have the ability to now. They, they probably got the idea from Angular to some extent. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination, but the deal is, is basically, I want to get in, I want to write my Angular code or my React code or my Vue code or whatever, right? I don't want to think about the rest of it, right? If I have to think about how it gets to the server, I want that to be as seamless as possible, and I don't need to know all the gory details. So yeah. then I can just write my code, and I can do the parts of it that I like. It's, like, very important that you have a clean mental model of, like, if, if you're diagnosing a bug, you want to limit where the bug could possibly be. Right. And like, if you have to worry about Webpack, all of a sudden, like, it could be literally anywhere, and it's frustrating. But mm -hmm. if that's taken away from you, like, it's very easy to understand like the limited set of places your bug can be, because all it is is your NPM modules and your own code. Yep, exactly. So, anything else you're working on that you want to bring up, or is that kind of your big thing right now? Um, I mean, I also work in console, and we are working on cool things. Yeah. Um, just fun. Uh, I'm trying to add a dark mode. Or uh, which like maybe not a dark mode. I'm trying to make console use Visual Studio Code's native colors, which is uh, they're finally exposing them as CSS variables. So like if you change the theme of your editor, Angular console should take on the same theme. But um, that would be cool. It's cool. It's just hard to do. Right now we have to load Angular console inside an iframe because uh, that's just a requirement from the Angular router. Is you need to. Uh, be able to switch the URL and VS Code's native web view doesn't let you do that. So mm -hmm. all things of process. Uh, you know, I think we're the biggest uh, consumer of their web view API right now, which is sort of a new kid around the block itself. So I need to stop being lazy and reach out to them to make that happen. Cool. All right. Well, um, if people want to find you online, see what you're working on, where do they go? Uh, you go to two places, um, none of which are social media. Social media is stupid. Um, <laughs> one of them is Medium. I try to write blog articles occasionally. Uh, I think I'll make a blog article about the proto-swagger stuff I was mentioning before, because I promised to write one eight months ago and never did. So I'm sure my two fans are eagerly waiting. And uh, other than that, uh, my GitHub's fun. You know, I randomly do projects there. Uh, me and a friend like, have uh, a project that we're trying to make uh, Angular projects code searchable. Uh, so we have like a, a Bayesian rule that theoretically in time we'll be able to like, output artifacts that a code indexer can use. So mm -hmm. if you've ever gone on github.com, their, their search is just awful because they just do regex searching and it's not, it's not great. It's not versions. But uh, if you use like an indexer, all of a sudden you can say these index artifacts are with this uh, like git commits and these ones are from master and then you can search different okay. commits. So that might be a fun thing to look at just because I don't, I don't think anybody else is working on it. We're just taking, it's an interesting project. Nice. All right, well let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Uh, that's a good question. I should have prepared some. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have one good pick. I just got this book, and when I was at the bookstore, I 
was uh, I just randomly flipped open uh, the book just so I could see like if it had a plot synopsis or anything. And it ended up being a really cool book. Uh, the intro was written by Kurt Vonnegut, who's my favorite author, which made me think that this book was definitely awesome. Um, and it is, it, it is awesome. It's like a, a book that writers really like because it has a whole bunch of like literary, like wordplay crap like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, it's called The Demolition Man and it's written by Alfred Bester. And it's awesome. It's, it's a really, really good book. And I would highly recommend it. And look, its cover's really pretty. Nice. So that's, uh, that's my pick. You should read a pick and then I might be able to think of another. Sure. So I'll, I'll do a pick. Um, I'm not sure where you're based at, but I was in San Francisco, uh, this last weekend mm -hmm. and I know that Google's based out there. So I don't, yeah, like I said, I don't know if you're based out there too or not, but I'm in Denver, Colorado, uh, Denver, the other direction. Yeah. Um, I'm in Salt Lake city, so I'm right in the middle. Oh, awesome. Dude. So anyway, um, I was out there for a conference called code bean. Uh, that's an Erlang and Elixir conference. And that was a ton of fun. Um, but the hotel that I stayed in was right on Fisherman's Wharf. Um, but the conference was also on Fisherman's Wharf, so I didn't have to go too far, right? But um, yeah, I just, you know, went for a run. I was pretty close to Alcatraz. I didn't make it out to Alcatraz. It's something that I kind of want to do. But, um, you know, I just go out for a run and just run down the, the bay. And that was, that was awesome. Ton of fun. And so I'm going to pick that. Um, just San Francisco in general. Um, hiked up to Coit Tower and, you know, did all that kind of thing. And yeah, it's just, it's just a fun city to go and visit. So I'm going to pick San Francisco. Cool. Yeah. As a tourist, nothing beats it. I mean, yep. unless you're afraid of hills, but if you're not afraid of hills, it's great. Well, if you don't like the hills, then you uh, hop one of the cable cars or something. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, it's, it's a fun, fun uh, city to go visit. Um, interestingly enough, I think last year I went to Oakland and it's it's kind of a different <laughs> they're pretty different cities i mean they're they're right across the bay from each other but yeah just kind of different flavor but yeah i really really enjoyed that and so i'm going to pick code beam and i'm going to pick san francisco cool um okay i have one more pick just because it's it's a cool thing and i didn't get to a chance to bring it up organically but i, I think it's objectively cool i'm not just yeah. a, a shill for my company okay i am a shill for my company but i pretend not to be um so anyway, uh, there's this cool thing that um, Jason Jean has been working on at Narwhal, where uh, he's adding um, some builders to the Angular CLI so that it can build React apps. So you can have Angular apps and React apps in the same repo and run them both with Angular CLI. And I just think that's really cool. So that is cool. I, I don't know why practically you would do that, but it's definitely interesting. It feels like a lot of corporations just can't make up their mind about which framework they want to use. Like they, they have a team that specializes in one thing and having them learn another thing would be an asshole. So they, they just don't and they just have both. At least that's what our clients sort of do. Like they, they have a React app and they have an Angular app and they don't want to switch. So, uh. Okay. If it, if it works for them, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's why Angular elements was made in the first place, I think. It's like people wanted to yeah. embed Angular apps inside React apps. Uh, I guess it's common enough that the Angular team heard about it too. Yep, guess so. All right, cool. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah, sure. It's a pleasure being here. Yep, we'll wrap this up and we will be back next week.
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.